Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michelle Elliott. I'm the host of BC Today on CBC Radio 1 and a proud UBC alumna. I'm delighted to be your moderator for this special UBC Dialogues, How Can BC Become More Welcoming for New Immigrants and Refugees, presented in partnership with the UBC Faculty of Education and Alumni UBC. I would like to begin by acknowledging that UBC's Vancouver Point Grey campus is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. And I am broadcasting from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. I'd also like to acknowledge that you are joining us today from many places near and far and acknowledge the traditional owners and caretakers of those lands. If you don't know on whose land you sit and would like to find out, I recommend going to www.native-land.ca to find out. It is a great resource. These are challenging times, both with the COVID-19 pandemic and anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, and anti-Asian racism in communities around the world. I encourage everyone joining us today to join the UBC community in reflecting on what actions we can take individually and together to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in our daily lives. There's a link to the UBC Equity and Inclusion website being shared in the chat now if you're looking for some resources to start. On behalf of the UBC Faculty of Education and Alumni UBC, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to everyone joining us today. We're happy to be able to present this online webinar during the extraordinary time we are all facing, and we are grateful to have you with us. We'd like to thank Alumni UBC Pillar partners Emanulife, TD Insurance, and BMO Alumni UBC MasterCard for their support of this webinar series. Now, a quick bit of housekeeping before we get started. If anyone is experiencing any audio or video issues, please reach out via the Zoom chat feature at the bottom of your screen for assistance. On the screen, you will see the UBC Respectful Environment Statement. This statement speaks to our freedoms and responsibilities and provides the guiding principles to support us in building an environment in which respect, civility, diversity, opportunity, and inclusion are valued. We ask that everyone participating in this webinar help contribute to creating a respectful environment for your fellow alumni, guests, and panelists. It's now my pleasure to introduce a special message from Roberta Lando Beiser, Chair of the Edith Lando Charitable Foundation. Roberta will share with us what motivated her family's generous $1 million donation to set up the UBC Lando Professorship in Refugee and Immigrant Youth and Family Counseling at UBC's Faculty of Education. I'm Roberta Lando Beiser, and on behalf of our family, I'm delighted to participate in this special UBC Dialogues. I chair the Edith Lando Charitable Foundation, and I'm representing it today. The focus of this grant and many of our other grants over the past few years has been aiding those who have immigrated to Canada. The reason for our interest in this subject is because our grandparents were all immigrants themselves. They left Eastern Europe and Russia 
escaping discrimination and economic hardships, hoping to build a new life for themselves, but more importantly, for their children in this new world, where they also had to face opposition from those who would have blocked their entry for reasons that are not that different from those who are hostile and suspicious of immigration in Canada this day. By the time she was born in Winnipeg, Edith Mitchell Lando's family had become more affluent, but they never forgot their origins, as well as the discrimination and struggles they confronted. In the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust, our parents played a major role in aiding immigrants to this country, Jews and many others. For instance, when thousands of former Indians were expelled from Uganda, my mother became very active in helping hundreds resettle in Vancouver, volunteering with Immigrant Services Society. She made dentist appointments. She took them shopping. She cooked for them. She bought the children toys, and she even paid to have a car especially adapted for a physically challenged young man. To this day, our family is in touch with the one of the families she helped. One of their members never forgot, making a regular contribution to our foundation. She established the Edith Lando Charitable Foundation as a vehicle to support her interests, not just for immigrants, but for the enormous problems of children experiencing abuse and bullying well before these themes became a focus of general interest. She felt that if all children could develop good self-esteem early on, they would do better in life. Enter the UBC Faculty of Education. Edith Lando was introduced to the concept of social and emotional well-being as a subject for teacher training. She was on board Courses were developed and research undertaken. The Edith Lando Professorship in Social and Emotional Learning was established. Fast forward when a new wave of refugees and immigrants arrived from Syria and beyond, the Edith Lando Charitable Foundation became involved again with the Immigrant Services Society of BC in resettlement issues primarily focused on young people. Additional projects were undertaken at UBC. My mother, Edith Lando, passed away in 2003, having been recognized in receiving the Order of Canada for her efforts. The foundation remains committed and active, directed by her four children to continue in her spirit. The reason we are present today is to announce a major gift to the UBC Faculty of Education for a new program in support of refugee and immigrant youth and family counseling, a demonstrated need in assisting positive integration of newcomers. Why UBC and the Faculty of Education? An excellent university with proven excellence in its Faculty of Education. The faculty works through the medium of education to address contemporary issues. It is here at the hub of immigrant and refugee resettlement 
we have had nothing but positive experiences in our association. Edith Lando would be applauding this latest project in her compassionate and dignified manner. Thank you, UBC, for giving us a chance to connect with your community in a very meaningful way. Thank you to Roberta. Her message reminds us all how inspired philanthropy generates innovation and in this special act of generosity, advances critical support for refugees and immigrants new to British Columbia. But Canada has a reputation for being a welcoming destination for new immigrants and refugees. However, this reputation is not always reflected in the reality these newcomers face in British Columbia. Gaps exist in terms of education, healthcare, employment, and social services. And new immigrants often face real struggles accessing the support they require. As both a settlement community and university, UBC has a critical role to play in supporting migration and integration efforts that enable newcomers to thrive. UBC also has a migration research cluster which brings together researchers from a wide range of disciplines and seeks to understand and engage in debate about the drivers and consequences of international migration through research, education, and outreach. To learn more about UBC migration, please visit the link being shared in the chat. We are lucky to have five experts here with us today, tuning in from their own locations to discuss this important topic. Although they are not yet alongside me on the screen, I would like to welcome them and thank them for their time. Shortly, I will introduce our speakers and invite them to join me on screen. I'll begin with some of my own questions for our esteemed experts, and I'll be taking questions from participants after that via Slido, which is our online engagement platform. You will have received instructions in the reminder email for this webinar, and some of you have already inputted questions. Thank you very much. But as a quick reminder to input your question, please go to slido.com, and you can use our event code dialogues, that's with an S, to sign in, and you will see these instructions on the screen. So let's get started. <coughs> I'd like to inter introduce now our panel of esteemed experts today. Her honor, the Honorable Janet Austin, was sworn in as the 30th Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia on April 24, 2018. Prior to this appointment, she spent 15 years as Chief Executive Officer of YWCA Metro Vancouver, where she oversaw operations delivering services to tens of thousands of people annually at more than 40 locations. Her honor is Chancellor of the Order of British Columbia and was invested as a member of the order in 2016. Welcome, Your Honor. UBC Hello. alumnus Chris Friesen is the Settlement Services Director at the Immigrant Services Society of British Columbia, where he served in this role for over 25 years. Chris was at the forefront of major immigration and refugee resettlement initiatives in BC and in Canada, including the unprecedented resettlement operation involving Syrian refugees in 2015 and 2016. He also currently serves as chair and founding member of the Canadian Immigrant Settlement Sector Alliance. And welcome to you, Chris. Thank you. 
We were to be joined by Dr. Amira Halperin, who is an expert in immigration and media. Unfortunately, she is unable to join us this afternoon. Dr. Gofang Lee is a professor and Canada Research Chair in Transnational and Global Perspectives of Language and Literacy Education of Children and Youth in the Faculty of Education at UBC. Her recent research interests are longitudinal studies of immigrant children's bicultural, bicultural and biliteracy development through the educational systems, technology, infused ESL and EFL instructional approaches, and diversity and equity issues, and teacher education and professional development for culturally and linguistically diverse children and youth. And welcome to you, Gofan. And Danny Ramadan is a Syrian-Canadian author and LGBTQ refugees advocate. His debut novel, The Clothesline Swing, won the Independent Publisher Book Award, the Canadian Authors Association Award, and was shortlisted for other honors. His children's book, Salma, the Syrian Chef, is nominated for the Forest of Readings Blue Spruce Award. And his next novel, The Foghorn Echoes, will be released in the summer of 2022. Danny Ramadan has raised over $200,000 for rainbow refugees through his fundraiser, An Evening in Damascus. And welcome to you, Danny. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Your Honor, I'd like to start with you. Social justice advocacy has been a key priority for you throughout your career and uh, something you continue to champion in your role as Lieutenant Governor of BC. How do you think we in British Columbia can build a culture of inclusion? Thank you, Michelle. And um, I'd like to thank uh, UBC and, and CBC uh, for convening this dialogue, which I think is incredibly important, particularly at this time. Uh, in order to answer the question about how we build and embed a culture of, of uh, inclusion and diversity, I think we first need to understand why that's important. And uh, I'd like to say that there's significant research that shows that many Canadians are fearful that immigration is detrimental to Canadian culture, economy, and society. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we are dependent on immigrants. They're critical to our economy and our society in terms of addressing our aging population and historically low birth rate to ensuring the stability of our health care and pension systems. They bring new entrepreneurial energy and skills and create new jobs. And they also have high rates of volunteering and participating in community organizations. Uh, I think these myths about immigrants need to be counteracted with facts and evidence, and we need to look at how that can be done online in traditional media, within organizations and, and communities. But it's also discussion that we need to have from a values-based perspective in terms of what kind of a country do we want? What do we, how do we want to live together? Canada also has a responsibility to do our part internationally to assist those who are escaping war, violence and discrimination in their countries of origin. And this in fact has been our history and it's been overwhelmingly positive. And we see that with the success and contributions of many immigrant and refugee populations. And I'm thinking of the lovely stories that Bertie Beiser just uh, shared with us. That those are the kinds of stories that I think we need to share more broadly. Um, diversity is in fact the, it, it's a Canadian condition. It's a reality for us. Um, I believe that if we manage it well, it will be both a strength and a differentiator for Canada in the global context. 
Um, I also believe that promoting inclusion, pluralism, and appreciation of our diversity also contributes to the stability of our society. Uh, you don't need to look too far to see the destabilizing effects of ethnic nationalism, sectarianism, and hyperpartisanship. It's also true that immigrants and refugees have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, um, but we won't ever truly contain the virus until we can address these inequalities. And so I think the sad reality is, is that we are looking at, at something like a K-shaped recovery, where many people do very well and many, in fact, do not. So these are all reasons why we need to promote a culture of inclusion for both altruistic and for practical reasons. It's both the sensible and, and the right thing to do. And I believe that the goal is to achieve a shared prosperity and a sense of belonging for all Canadians. So I certainly have ideas about how we can do this, but I'm going to close there because I know we'll have opportunities to discuss that in more detail as we proceed with the discussion this afternoon. Thank you very much, Your Honor, for getting us started. I'll move on to Chris Friesen now. Chris, uh, in many ways, Canada stands as a beacon of hope around the world of integration, uh, how integration can look. Uh, however, though, we are far from perfect. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what, what are some of the shortcomings you've seen um, in how we welcome uh, immigrants and refugees? And how do you think uh, COVID-19 has, has perhaps amplified those shortcomings? Yeah, the last eight months have been uh, incredible, uh, transformative on the lives of uh, newly arrived immigrant and refugees here in British Columbia. We've, we've seen two things. On the one hand, we've seen how critically important immigrants and refugees are to the BC economy. We have seen them working two or three jobs without benefits. Uh, we've seen and it's amplified the, the uh, economic and social inequalities. Um, we've also seen how um, the heightened awareness of the digital divide, the lack of access to technology and how much our society has now uh, relies on technology. The complexity of Canada's social net, it is of tremendous value but as a non-English or French speaking immigrant or refugee, navigating the complexity of our system is daunting. Um, we have had um, newcomers who had just recently arrived in 2019. They had no ability um, to file their income tax and, our, and those income tax filings directly correlated to their ability to access some federal benefits. Um, we have seen how um, the lack of uh, universal supports to some temporary residents, temporary foreign workers, seasonal agricultural workers and refugee claimants. So it has really highlighted the, uh, the uh, inequality within um, Canadian society. And of course, as Her Honour mentioned, we have seen the rise of racist incidences impacting uh, specific communities that have been in this province for decades. So what do we, you know, how do we dare to dream post, you know, COVID-19? A couple of things I'd like to kind of put out there. First off, a universal basic income. 
I think it is time now that we look closely to the notion of a universal basic income. The research that is coming out uh, from various countries around the world is really seeing this as an opportunity to lift people from poverty, to increase their trust in social institutions, and really improve house uh, health outcomes. We also need to look at our immigration system. So much of how we select immigrants are based on the point system, on the economic category. But as we've seen through the pandemic, essential service workers reflected by immigrants and refugees really tells us what we need to revisit of the point system, because we need more individuals, more newcomers to do essential service workers. And this is where we're not selecting. Our system is disconnected to some of the needs that we've uh, seen. So I'll leave it there as a starting comments. Thank you. Lots to talk about there, certainly. Thank you very much, Chris. And Gofang Lee, your current research is focused on immigrant children, youth, families, and schools. What can you tell us about the role specifically, specifically that language plays in the integration of newcomers? And, and what do you think is needed to, to improve what we have now in terms of supports? Michelle, thank you for raising the question. Uh, language is actually central to their, uh, their families um, social and economic success uh, in Canada. Uh, for adults, um, language proficiency is um, closely related to their uh, access to better job opportunities, to their earnings, and to their access to social services, as Chris just mentioned. For children, uh, language is really uh, central to their academic success and the social-emotional uh, health and, and, and the social integration in school. So language is really central to the well-being of the family. So uh, I think that in order to provide better services to uh, improve uh, immigrant and refugee families' language proficiency, we needed to take a whole language, a whole family and whole school approach. Uh, by whole, whole family approach, I mean that we need to provide services uh, for adults who have very different uh, educational and, and language backgrounds. Uh, currently, the language programs are very one-size-fit-all, so many uh, teachers may not be prepared to teach um, very diverse level of, uh, of adults in the class. For example, some adults may be preliterate, some adults are, are have really uh, uh, much more stronger background in language. And the same with uh, children who uh, maybe uh, spend time in refugee camps may need more time to transition to the regular classroom instruction. And, and the same with uh, children who come with more background in language as well. So another, uh, aspect of that is that uh, in, in addition to language, we need to also uh, incorporate anti-racism and anti-prejudice uh, education. So far, uh, language education has been based on a deficit perspective, um, not really making capitalize on their first language and resources that they bring to the classroom or to the society. So. So we need to uh, focus on more asset-based education. 
the second aspect is the whole school education aspect is that we are not only need to provide services to children and 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 their families uh, through the school services, but also we need to uh, prepare our better prepare our educators to serve these children and teach them uh, with uh, evidence based uh, practices. Um, so, thank you very much. Lots to talk about there. I think we can certainly pull in the thread of language uh, throughout this conversation. Uh, Danny Ramadan, as an LGBTQ refugees advocate and activist who has also lived this experience yourself, what would you say are the challenges facing refugees after arriving in their new home here? And, and uh, to follow up on, on uh, what Gofang was just talking about, what do you feel is missing in those, those levels of support? Um, thank you for the question, Michelle. I think I think that there's multiple, I mean, everybody else on the panel has already spoken about many of the challenges that face newcomers and refugees. But I think that there's one important challenge that we need to look at, which is the uh, societal narrative around uh, refugees and newcomers. There is this, this um, simplifying concept of what a refugee goes through where um, we are looking at the arrival at the airport as if it is the the end of their struggle as if at the airport you drop there and all of your trauma all of your challenges from the from from the past are over and that by itself is simply not true because a lot of refugees and newcomers uh, they their their most challenging year is not really being back there. It's more being here uh, and their first year here searching for a home, searching for a job. Um, and as well as if we even look at those logistical matters on the side, we can also look at the emotional challenges of uh, building a sense of belonging to this new uh, brand new strange world that they're arriving at. Uh, building a sense of camaraderie and, and community around them uh, as they are completely taken away from that part of the world and brought into this part of the world. Which brings me into my next point, which is um, also another societal narrative where we are looking at here as good while there is bad. Uh, a lot of times when I talk to people and, I, um, and they ask me like, you have an accent or where you're really from, which are problematic questions to begin with. But um, when I say Syria, everybody is, is, is sighing in relief because I have made it here. And yes, I understand like as a gay man back in Syria, there was a lot of homophobia. Uh, as, a, as a person who struggles through the civil war in Syria, I also understand that. But also my experience back in Syria is way more complex than that. Uh, Syria is the place that I was born in, the language that I speak. It's where I climbed a tree for the first time and wore shorts for the first time and I kissed a boy for the first time. So it's, it's a more complex uh, narrative really than, than just here is good and over there is bad. And I think it is really important for the society to, to allow newcomers and refugees to, to bring the uniqueness of their cultures, to bring the uniqueness of their heritage with them here and, and introduce it to the Canadian community and, and add to that cliche as it may be the mosaic of Canadian, uh, the Canadian society that we are living in right now. I'd love to jump off of your points there and ask Chris Friesen then, keep, keeping in mind uh, his, 
his uh, uh, points that he's just made about this very simplistic narrative of, you know, uh, once you arrive, that's the end of your story and all will be well. What were the lessons, Chris, from um, you, the, what the, uh, the arrival uh, and resettlement uh, involving Syrian refugees five years ago? What are some things that were done to try and avoid those pitfalls? Uh, is there anything you can share? Well, I think one of the, one of the tremendous learnings from it uh, from Operation Syrian Refugee was that it was an all of BC project. Everyone got involved everywhere in British Columbia. It was, it was, it brought out the best of BC residents. It was, it was employers, it was the government, it was uh, faith communities, uh, children, everyone came together. So very much that is a, a promising practice. And I think that if we look forward again, and we've just heard this past Friday, uh, Minister Menoncino announced, you know, three-year plan to bring in over 1.2 million um, permanent residents uh, over the next uh, three years. I think what is missing here in British Columbia is, um, and through that operation, every, every department in government, every ministry in government, starting from the premier's office to the health, to education, were involved. I think what is missing here is, is the ability to develop a all of government approach. What is the vision for British Columbia, for the BC government, looking ahead five years? to immigration in this province. Moving away from a reactive mode, people arrive and we support them, to really developing an all of government five-year plan as an example of how we can better understand the contribution and impact of immigration on our province. What are the settlement patterns? What is the data? How many temporary residents are converting from temporary residents to permanent residents? How all of this, I think, becomes increasingly important as we um, take a step back to fully understand the contribution and impact and future demographic transformation here in British Columbia. Uh, Gofang Lee, I'd love to ask you about that. If you were to shape, help shape a five-year plan, I imagine education would be a big part of that. What are, can you specify what programs you would like to see then? I believe you're muted right now, Gofang, if you don't, there you are. So I would like to see uh, programs that, that uh, gear towards different, different uh, uh, immigrant uh, parents or adults of, of different backgrounds. Uh, right now, a lot of the uh, language programs focus on accent reduction and uh, have a difficulty differentiation interaction between those who are preliterate, who are highly literate. So there are different programs for different backgrounds and, and using different instructional strategies. Uh, that will be one, one aspect. The second program, uh, 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 is, is a profession within the school system. I would like to see whole school system movement towards um, providing better uh, informed instruction. For example, uh, many educators may, be, may need to be updated with trauma-informed in, uh, instruction for, for uh, refugee learners who, who had a tra traumatic experiences. I also like to see 
uh, more cooperation between um, schools and communities uh, as there are many programs already at work right now, but I think we, we can benefit more of this school community cooperation in terms of providing services. And, and we also need to move away from uh, what Danny referred to, uh, very short-term workshop style education um, opportunities, more long-term uh, provisions uh, for uh, family services and also for, uh, for those language provisions, not just uh, get them through finishing the or passing the citizenship uh, program uh, tests, but more helping them um, get access to better jobs and to actually improve the performance at, uh, when, once they get jobs. Another aspect I think is this may re relate to policy issue uh, related to how we can um, better capitalize their skills that they and education uh, that uh, immigrant and refugees bring from their own countries by uh, providing better certification or recognition of their previous certification. We have research um, focus, uh, we found that uh, a lot of the immigrants and refugees have a, have a very uh, huge status drop because their previous um, educational certificates, their skills were not recognized in the host country. So therefore you can see, you see uh, PhD, uh, people with PhD in South Center areas where our tax become taxi drivers or pizza delivery, per, uh, delivery men or women. So it, it, it's, uh, I think this is more uh, policy in terms of immigration, the changing from the point system to something more, um, a humanizing perspective that focuses on individual strengths and um, assets that they bring to this country. And touching on uh, uh, you've just touched on certification there. Um, uh, Chris Friesen spoke earlier about the digital divide, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, you know, we've seen obviously throughout the pandemic this pivot to online, whether that's working or or learning. Um, but so many uh, new arrivals do not have access to all those devices. Um, what can we do to ensure that those barriers are overcome and are removed? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a, an amplified a, a digital divide, um, the, the haves or have-nots in that right now uh, in, in light of pandemic. Uh, we have a recent survey of 37% of refugee families do not have a computer for their children for their education. So you can see that they, they, there will be a widening gap um, uh, in terms of uh, technology access and and also uh, access to print uh, materials for for academic purposes, so I think that education um, I think should provide uh, through the community and and school uh, collaboration maybe to understand what are the refugees and and new immigrants needs if they don't have computer they are loan systems and they are there should be mechanisms that provide that they ensure that they have that access uh, for, for access to education and resources and services. So I think this is more a policy issue and also a, uh, a, a community educational uh, collaboration issue as well. Okay. Um, I'd like to turn to your honor, Janet Austin. Um, well, we heard Danny Ramadan talk about, you know, how um, we may view where people come from as sort of another place and, you know, there is bad, here is good. I was uh, interested in your comment earlier, you know, how do we overcome 
that, that uh, perception, um, that myth that immigration is detrimental. And I'm wondering how important is it to have an understanding of, a greater understanding of where people come from in order to, 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 to overcome that myth? Oh, pardon me, Your Honor, you're on mute as well. You'd think after all these Zooms, I would know that by now. Sorry. I do it every single time. <laughs> all right. I, I do think it, it's, uh, it's absolutely fundamental to uh, building um, a broader culture that, that embraces and, and our diversity and, and, and encourages behaviors around inclusion. Um, you know, clearly the myths um, and the misinformation that exists needs to be counteracted with facts and with evidence. And that needs to be looked at in terms of, you know, the kind of information that appears in traditional media, um, online and social media, I think is an extremely important place to be uh, placing attention. Um, but also within organizations like the systems and processes that all organizations have um, can be very helpful in building um, a broader and a more accurate understanding. I think stories are also key. And when uh, Chris's outstanding management of the Syrian uh, refugee situation is a good example. I think one of the reasons that we saw that massive outpouring of empathy and, and support for, for Syrians was, um, was the fact that um, there was a story that, we, that connected us to our common humanity. We connected with the reality of the families one family in particular, that really transformed people's understanding. So the better able we are to share these stories more broadly, um, the better job I think that we will do as a society. Uh, I think it's also really key to think about this from a values um, perspective. Um, what are the things that we want in society? How do we want to be treated? Um, and, and how does that influence the, the, the way that we reach out and, and support others. Um, I'll mention um, one of the things that I did earlier this year was um, at the request of the, uh, the legislature, a nonpartisan request from all of the BC legislature and uh, the BC business community um, led a, a campaign um, to combat, combat racism. Initially it came, it was, it was, uh, I guess, initiated by concerns about uh, anti-Asian violence flowing from fears of uh, coronavirus cont contagion. But I felt it was important to broaden it and to reflect the, the, the range of, of uh, communities that have experienced historically and currently violence. So uh, obviously Black and BIPOC people, Indigenous peoples, uh, anti-Semitism, all of these things. So we launched a social media campaign um, using the hashtag different together and we developed a pledge um, that we asked people to take to um, basically uh, embrace the foundational values, Canadian values of diversity and inclusion, um, to embrace those and commit, um, commit personally to make a difference both in words and in actions. Um, but there was also a recognition that the country that we aspire to, these are aspirational values, the country that we aspire to is not a reality for many Canadians and we need to work on that. So those are a few things I think are important. Um, I think organizations also um, can be very powerful. Uh, for example, I think if business organizations were to collaborate with civil society organizations and mount a significant communications campaign um, to provide more accurate information 
on the benefits of, of immigration, that could be very powerful. So I think there are a number of things that we can do. Um, but what's key is I think we all need to take some personal responsibility for it. And when we are in a position of leadership, um, we need to use that position of leadership in a constructive way. And I'm personally committed to using my platform as Lieutenant Governor to do what I can. Thank you. And Danny, uh, thinking about the, the subject of racism really has come to the fore over the last few months. Um, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, and, and against people of color. Through your experience and through your work as an advocate and activist, how is that affecting uh, refugees in their experience of trying to settle here in Canada? Thank you for that question. I think, I think it's really important when we are looking at uh, the, the, the lived experiences of refugees, of new immigrants, that we look at that from the intersectional uh, lens of they're not just refugees. They're, many of them are also people of color. Many of them might have disabilities or um, uh, sexual minorities or gender minorities. So um, we, we tend to, um, to divide the identity of a refugee into little um, boxes that we're trying to fit. And that, that makes no sense to the refugee. Like I am, I, I have a refugee experience. I am uh, a Syrian person, so I'm, I'm a person of color and I have mental health issues and I'm queer, but I'm all of those things at the same time. You, I, I'm not a refugee when I arrive at the airport and then uh, a queer man when I'm eating breakfast. You just can't take those identities out from one another. And I think that in the in the recent um, months, we have gained a more understanding of the challenges that face folks who are racialized. But that doesn't mean that those understand those those um, those challenges have been uh, happening only in the last few months. Um, I I personally. <laughs> It's going to sound really funny, but I didn't know that racism exists before I came to Canada. I was, I was from my own um, society. I was Syrian among Syrians. I never thought about my race as an identity until I arrived here and I start facing uh, racially charged challenges, um, uh, lack of job interviews based on my last name, uh, people asking me questions that are problematic in nature, and, and then I started to understand that those are racially charged things. And then I started to understand who I am as a person of color. So I would say that there is definitely a big challenge that faces uh, newcomers and immigrants because they're not just newcomers and immigrants. They're also people of color coming in to participate in a system that is that was built by white supremacy 150 years ago and still has remnants of that challenges up until today. I have a, uh, just a few minutes left for my my uh, my questions, and then I'll turn it over to our audience who are now uh, putting up their questions on Slido. I want to ask Chris Friesen a question. Um, Her Honor started with you know countering that that fear that uh, that immigration is detrimental to our country. Um, given your suggestions to, for example, universal basic income, how do you counter that perception that these kinds, kinds of supports um, will be detrimental? 
I think we have to recognize that um, although uh, recent immigrants and refugees face some unique challenges as a result of their pre-migration experiences and lived experiences, there is a commonality that comes together between citizens and newcomers around issues of poverty, of racism, um, and I think that this has to be looked at from a from a all inclusive. It's not a division of the haves and have-nots. It's about how how wide can we bring everyone into the circle. We know that racism has existed in this province for many years, and and this is a journey. There's no end point, um, but there are definitely things that we can be doing. That, uh, that people are doing that we can build, a, uh, build upon. I think listening to both Danny and uh, her honor, another area that has struck me in recent months uh, that, has, uh, that has been highlighted by COVID is the fact that there wasn't as much data gathered around the infection rates, who was most vulnerable. To me, this really shone a light on perhaps we need to be going back to, for example, government, um, government funded services, government delivered services. How well are we capturing uh, uh, resident data? Are we capturing information about race, about gender, about legal status? Not from a perspective of dividing, but in a perspective to make more informed, strategic resource allocation discussions. We didn't know, and we were advocating as a sector with uh, BC Primary Health uh, around guidelines, around better understanding who was being impacted from a race and gender perspective in order to um, provide uh, more informed decisions around resource allocation. So this is an area that I think um, needs to be considered going forward. And in the way that I described it, not as a way of dividing us, but helping bring us closer together. Thank you very much to all of you. Uh, I could keep asking you questions, but uh, I'd love to put some of our audience questions to you. We have some great ones coming in already. Um, I think this one is, is, is a question perhaps best directed to Go Fang Lee. What practices are being explored to ensure that teacher education programs and schools and universities in BC are free from discrimination and racism. So starting at the education point for those who will be working edu in education. Yes, go finally, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for this important question. I think we need to actually uh, address from two uh, kind of systems and they're connected to each other. One is in pre-service pre teachers education. We need to start, uh, in fact, we probably need to start at K-12 and then move on to, um, to pre-service teacher education where uh, we, we uh, have the uh, infused anti-racism, uh, anti-prejudice uh, and, and 
education in our teacher preparation programs. Um, uh, in our uh, teacher preparation programs at UBC, we have a very strong advocate for social justice uh, oriented education and multilingualism and multi-modality uh, education. So we are trying to uh, prepare the next generation of teachers uh, to, to go into the school with uh, new perspectives. And another aspect, of course, we need to focus on in-service teacher education. Um, a recent, um, re recent survey from, from the Maritimes preference said that um, many of the uh, newcomers and refugee students are experiencing um, racism daily from actually the school system, the, the, the adults that uh, are teaching them every day. So those are maybe unconscious for some well-intentioned well in, in some cases. However, uh, this shows the need to really uh, prepare our uh, educators, um, the administrators, the educators for, uh, for this kind of anti-racism education. Uh, and fortunately, that BC is just beginning to launch this kind of effort across different school districts. Um, but we're just the beginning part. Um, I think that this dialogue is a, a perfect example that this is a time of need for this kind of um, discussion and education. Thank you very much. Thank you for that question. Um, a question for you, Danny Ramadan. You mentioned how problematic it is when someone asks, where are you from? And this person is asking, as a racially ambiguous person, how do I respond to these problematic questions? And uh, following up to that, another question also uh, around the, the simplified narratives that exist. Uh, in what can we do? What actions can individuals take to, to, to challenge those views and to build a more inclusive uh, community? Just those questions? I mean, I uh, give me all afternoon and I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, as for the problematic questions, I think, I think it's really important to look at the context of the question itself. Um, sometimes after I get to know someone and we spend a couple of, um, couple of hours talking and then they ask me about my cultural background, I'm way more comfortable uh, sharing about my cultural background because there has been trust that has been built between me and this person talking. But, uh, and this is a real story, uh, I was in the line for coffee at Starbucks at 6.30 in the morning, and the person behind me just literally tapped on my shoulder and I was like, where are you from? And that, that, that's problematic by itself because you're invading my privacy, uh, you're asking questions because you're saying that I don't belong here by saying that where I'm from, and also you're trying to talk to me before my coffee. All of that doesn't work really well for, for either of us. Um, so I look at the context if, in which that question is asked, and I also recognize my own experience because I am Syrian. I am from Syria originally, and now I'm Can Canadian and I'm from Canada too. So I answer this question such as, I am Syrian or I was born in Damascus and now I'm Canadian. Um, the question becomes even more problematic when you look at somebody who's a second generation, a third generation, somebody who has been living here for multiple years, um, and they're asked as if they don't have the right to be part of this country, as if um, it's not natural or normal for them to be part of this country. So I hope that answers the first half of the question. The second half of the question, I think, um, it's talking about the simplified context and how can we as a community navigate uh, those uh, narratives. 
I think a big part of that is to understand the uniqueness of each and every person who's a refugee uh, and the uniqueness of their experience. I think there's a lot of usage of words like a flood of refugees or uh, a group of refugees or somebody speaking on behalf of all refugees. And I can assure you, as a Syrian man, I disagree with 90% of other Syrian men. That's, that's how we are as, a pe as people. We don't actually see eye to eye on everything. And I highly doubt that the five of us, if we have conversations, will end up having also differences of opinions. And that's totally fine. So I think it is really important to look at each and every person and their unique experience, their unique skills, and, and help those folks shine in the community that they are here. Um, you should have seen the face of the social worker at Work BC when I told her in 2014 that I want to be an author. And it just doesn't work. Like there is this expectation of what a refugee should do and shouldn't do. And yet here I am six years old, uh, later, I am um, a very successful author, thankfully, knock on wood. And that's really rare to, to be seen. So I would say that if that social worker six years ago had the, 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 the ability to trust the uniqueness of my own experience as well as everybody else, my road towards where I am right now would have been much easier. Hmm. Thank you for that. And thank you for those questions. Um, I'm going to put this one to uh, Chris Friesen, a very specific questions. Are there any organizations I may participate in? Um, as a volunteer to help immigrants and refugees? Oh, absolutely. There is so many initiatives happening um, across British Columbia. There are over 50 immigrant and refugee serving organizations, multicultural organizations, anti-racist organizations. Um, I would, you know, start from, from those if you're interested in making, you know, a, a real difference. Um, some of what um, we heard earlier um, in uh, Roberta Beiser's remarks around her mother, um, the volunteering that she did and the difference that that made, not only for those that, those newcomers, but also to her life, they enriched her life. There are many things that we can be doing. It doesn't have to be complex. Um, that welcome can start literally, um, you know, in that Starbucks line. <laughs> By not asking a question before the first coffee. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Is that okay? Thank you very much for that. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, this is a, another really great question. I'm going to leave this to, to, um, to the floor because I feel like I can hear answers from each of you on this. How can we, and, and please just raise your hand if you'd like to, to address it. How can we ensure that immigrant and refugee voices are heard and their lived experience and knowledge used when creating and proposing solutions to their belonging? Um, who would like to address that first? You're all being very polite to each other. I, I okay. think, <laughs> you know, I think what I was saying earlier around Chris, I think your uh, screen is freezing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, of course, I'm going to come back to you because your your um your screen is just freezing at the moment. So I'll let that try. Sure. And catch up. Um, your Honor, you wanted to address that as well. Uh, yeah, I think um, part of that is by. Looking... 
looking at the, the post. And, Whoops, I think I'm getting some interference. I'm not sure he heard us. Um, if there's a way we can have uh, Chris's muted um, just for a moment uh, while we make sure he, he knows that his, uh, his feed is, is skipping. That would be great. Thank you very much. And yes, pardon me, Your Honor, please do go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, actually, I'm sure that Chris could uh, handle this question uh, much better than I, but uh, I think it's very important to look to the processes, decision-making processes that we have really in organizations throughout society. So organ um, uh, business organizations, when they're making decisions about um, how they um, select people for leadership, um, the ideas that they bring forward, they need to look systemically at, um, at, at how, um, how these things are sort of structured across their organization. So perhaps even starting with taking a bit of a baseline um, um, and asking employees some basic questions, gathering some basic information about the diversity that exists within any organization and also testing some of their attitudes and identifying areas of strengths and potentially areas where people perhaps um, uh, need additional support. So I think you need to really make an effort to reach out across those boundaries that divide people. Um, you need to create the conditions where people feel welcomed um, to provide information. Uh, and that means um, encouraging a tolerance for what can sometimes be a, a difficult conversations. So it's also important that people um, have some safe spaces where they can ask challenging questions, um, probably with some guidance. You know, people do need guidance around these things, but really I do think it's a question of looking at the systems and processes really in all aspects of society and, and, what are the, and identifying the barriers that make it difficult for people to come forward uh, with suggestions and thoughts. Okay. The importance of uh, representation as well, it sounds like, from what you're saying there. I believe we have Chris Friesen back. Hi, Chris. I'm back. Yeah, yeah there you are. Oh, sounding good, nice and smooth. Yes. Uh, please do go ahead. A little, a little Zoom hiccup. <laughs> <laughs> Who hasn't encountered Who hasn't, exactly. No, I think, I think following uh, her honor, courageous discussions having the, you know, a safe space to have courageous discussions, to, to, to have dialogue uh, that's based on facts, uh, that, that allows us to move forward collectively. Um, you know, we're having that. Again, this, some of this is not new. I mean, we're, there are many local communities in BC that have very rich multi-faith dialogues, there are communities that have local immigration partnership tables that are bringing together a variety of views, a lot of work being done around inclusiveness and research and social isolation. Um, we are on a journey. There's no end point. Canada is part of a global social experiment. This whole notion of, of uh, integration of the multitudes of newcomers coming to this country I think we've got to continue to do what we're doing now um, with, uh, with some uh, you know, enhancements. Okay, thank you very much. Um, does anybody, yes, Danny, please go ahead. Uh, sure, so I think, I think a big important part of this is the distinguish between representation and inclusion. Mm. Um, and the difference between the two is really in the intention of it. 
you would see a lot of um, organizations or a lot of boards of different organizations that are seeking newcomers, refugees, people who had that experience to be part of the board. And they're represented then um, in the board group photo and on the website. But then we're talking about taking those voices and ensuring that they're not just a photo on the website, that they have a voice in the organization equal to others, even if they don't speak the language as fluently as everybody around the table, even if they need some help or support and understanding the systems that they are now still new to. Um, I think it's, it's, that's the difference between representing someone, someone's identity on um, in a group or being inclusive towards that identity. I think representation comes across sometimes as passive while inclusion has to be uh, active. Okay. We have to, to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes. It's okay. If I could just add to that, um, I, uh, Danny, I thought that was an extremely important uh, point and, and very well said. Um, mm -hmm. It reminds me of, of the fact that I think the words diversity, inclusion, and belonging are often used interchangeably, but in fact, they have different meanings. And so diversity is really a statement of, of, of a condition, you know, um, so it's a fact. Uh, inclusion is a behavior. So we want to encourage people to include others and provide support for how that can be done. Um, but belonging is an emotional response. And I think that's what we're striving for, is this sense that people belong, they have a place at the table, their voice matters. Um, and, and, and that's really the goal. So we don't get to that goal, though, until we, unless we are able to really embed, embed that culture of inclusion where it becomes um, expected that our behavior is to include others. Okay. Um, we have a few questions as well that look to solutions, and I really would love to get to these as well. Um, I wonder if this is a, a question for you, Danny. Uh, what tools are there available to better understand the intersectionality of people who are immigrants and refugees in BC? Have a conversation about it. Um, it's, it's honestly, it's as simple as having a conversation about it. I think it's really important that we teach newcomers and refugees as they arrive about their interse intersectional identity. We talk to them about how they want to identify as humans within that, that, that system. But then, I, and that conversation can go so many different ways. Somebody can come here and, and be like, yeah, sure, awesome. Like this is a concept that is out there and I don't want to play this game. I don't want to be part of this, uh, this dialogue. And that is their, their decision. If they just want to come here and worry about survival, building a home, finding, um, building their, their future and the future of their children, that is totally their decision. Um, the other thing is, I would say that, um, yeah, just like talk to people, have a conversation about it, be prepared to have those difficult conversations and be kind about it. Kindness, like here in BC, I guess, be kind has been uh, our slogan over the past months. And I couldn't think of a better say, thing to say because we are all in need of some kindness in our life and immigrants and refugees are no different than that. You brought up an interesting point there, which is also the weight that is placed on immigrants and refugees to explain or to, you know, if, if you say they don't want to necessarily be part of that conversation. Um, how much, it, it, how much, um, 
uh, I, I, oh, that labor is being put on them as well. Um, oh God, all of it. Uh, <laughs> I would say, I would say that actually that was a joke. So um, there's, it doesn't discount. I don't mean to discount the work that folks, uh, some of them, have, like all of you here on this panel, as well as uh, everybody who's out here in Vancouver and across British Columbia doing to ensure that that weight is not only on the immigrants and refugees. However, sometimes it feels that way. And, and I would say that there are two answers to this. The first answer is directed towards immigrants and refugees who are listening right now, over 120 people listening right now. I would say, you don't have to answer. This is not your job. You're not paid for this. This shouldn't take some of your mental space. If you're not ready to answer, that is totally fine. Uh, Google is available and people can literally go and Google this. Um, and if you want to answer, answer without the expectation of the other um, um, confirming your identity or, or acknowledging your identity because the other person doesn't necessarily go, is not necessarily going to understand what you're talking about. Um, and the other part of the, the, the answer is towards this new community um, where I think it's really important to welcome the refugees with their unique experiences themselves. I am an outspoken person. I talk about being a, a brown person. I talk about being a refugee. I talk about, I, people tell me to shut the hell up because I talk too much about all of those things. And I'm totally fine with that. Um, and I know other, other newcomers and refugees who share many of my experiences, but they're not in the space to talk about this. And they don't want to. And I hold a lot of empathy towards that because there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of challenges that people go through before they arrive here to Canada. And if you're not ready to talk to, about it to random strangers in the line of, of Starbucks, then you're not ready and that's totally fine. Thank you for that. Um, here's a question that I think would be um, a, a good one for Gofang Lee. Could we get an inventory bank going on best practices in the education, se education sector in BC that's being done out there to help uh, with this conversation? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, we, uh, we actually, one, my, uh, my colleague and I uh, published a book, Best Practices on How to Teach uh, ESO. So, uh, of course, it needs to be updated. And then we have a lot of uh, uh, services for uh, language education. And we also have uh, some, uh, some very successful examples of teachers doing those kind of projects. Um, my colleagues, many of my colleagues are working in this area as well. So they have done research and there's research proven practices that help uh, refugees uh, feel um, very, very welcome. For example, one, one uh, I want to add to uh, the conversation, the two questions before that we need to have uh, students' voices heard as well, right? Uh, through through uh, school education. So one of the 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 kind of uh, uh, instructional uh, strategies that my colleagues here come up um, with, uh, Dr. Margaret Early and um, Jim Cummins um, from OEZI, they started this um, multi literacy projects focused on uh, identity identity texts of um, newcomers. So what what does is to in, encourage them to use their um, multi language multilingual resources and multi modal and, um, uh, 
ways of uh, expression to talk about their diverse identities in a safe and a comfortable environment in school and to be shared. So there across the country, many teachers are doing similar projects that connect the students' identities um, with their language and literacy education. So they are successful examples of how that can work. And, and students not only, not only learn uh, how to negotiate their multiple identities in the new environment, but also find ways to, to learn about the, the difficult conversations about uh, intersectionality of different kind of um, identities, for example, gender, race, and, and through those kind of uh, self-expression. So I think there are many uh, projects that are at work that that focus on this kind of uh, best practices. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, going back to Chris on universal basic income, we have a question, how feasible is it, especially in our current pandemic economic context? I mean, you know, dare to dream. But, but with that said, look at our system. It's so fragmented, this, this, this uh, you know, shared jurisdictional responsibility where, where we have provincial income support programs, we have a provincial rental programs, we have a federal, um, uh, you know, uh, COVID emergency benefits, we have CPP, we have old age security, we have all of these institutional structures within government that, 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 are, that are putting out this system. It, it just seems to me that this would be so much more beneficial if we could come to conclusion and, and really look closely at the pros and cons of introducing a universal basic income and, 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 and start from there, understanding that we are all inclusive. This is about all of us. Um, and as I said, some of the research that I have been reading in the last few months have really shone a light and, and through the complexity of immigrants and refugees having to navigate the complexity of our systems really shone a light around, boy, this would be so much easier um, if we had something like a universal basic income. Thank you for dare that. Dare to dream, dare to dream is what I say. <laughs> Here's a question. Um, oh, there it is. Pardon me. Questions are still coming in. So um, I have a few more minutes. Uh, I'll, I'll put this to the floor and, and let me know if you'd like to answer. Um, because again, I think there will be um, different uh, responses from or, or everybody can address this question. With the increase in immigrant numbers, what kind of funding increases will be needed and available and or available, especially for systemic solutions to barriers to belonging? So talking about funding increases, what is needed and what is available? Uh, yes, Danny. Oh my God, I love that question. Uh, let's talk about mental health, please, and thank you. I think it is really extremely important to recognize that the refugees coming here really truly need counseling and support in that, in that, um, um, in that first couple of years of their life. We're talking about one of the most amazingly challenging and amazingly beautiful experiences when you are taken just like a unit from one end of the world to the other end of the world. And you, 
speaking of the fairy tale of the arrival at the airport, you don't leave your trauma behind at the airport. You bring it with you here to Canada. And I think it's really important and to 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 train counselors and mental health professions on the intricate details of the refugee experience, uh, be it through uh, their challenges with uh, with their trauma, with their past trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, social anxieties, um, self-confidence because they don't speak the language, they don't feel that they are in the same place of power they used to back home, um, or racism, or any of those challenges, I think funding the first stream of funding should go to mental health um, related issues. I would also add, Premier Horgan has this opportunity now to uh, select his new cabinet. Is it time to consider a designated ministry of immigration, multiculturalism and anti-racism in this province? Yes, yes to that. What difference do you think that would make? Well, I think it provides a focal point on these, all of these discussions we've had. It, 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 it doesn't take away from what I was saying earlier around the need of a multi-year vision and plan, an all-of-government plan. But I think that with the accelerated arrivals, um, both from permanent residents and temporary residents, and the impact um, and vulnerabilities, we really need to um, uh, refocus our, our efforts and really, um, I think that could happen as a starting point from a designated uh, ministry with a designated minister responsible for these areas. Okay, uh, anybody else would like to? We have, uh, we have some questions that are along similar themes. And as I start to wrap up here, we, we have time for one more question. I'm going to sort of amalgamate um, two questions here about um, fostering a sense of belonging for immigrants and refugees. What are some ways we can do that? And another one is what is the role of government in increasing cultural inclusivity? Uh, seem to be nice themes to end our conversation with. Uh, who would like to, to start off on that question? Uh, yes, go ahead, Chris. Canada is unique in the world. It has a federal program called Canada Connects, and it is about bringing together newcomers with longer-term residents in a spirit of mentorship and shared learning around social and economic integration, building your, your net, your safety net, your social network. You know, this is a really practical grassroots uh, way. You know, if our listeners today have extra time, um, approach one of the many uh, immigrant and refugee serving organizations throughout British Columbia in, in your community to see if there is a way that you could provide a few extra hours a week to help someone settle. Uh, as well as uh, taking advantage of that opportunity to learn about immigration in a very practical, real, and meaningful way. It doesn't have to be complex. It can be simply uh, of, of giving some of your time, reaching out and supporting those that are new to your community. 
Okay, thank you. Um, uh, yes, Gofeng, please go ahead, and then your uh, honor. Uh, I want to add to Chris' point uh, that many organizations, for example, uh, volunteer to school to read to a child for for uh, uh, 30 minutes or 15 minutes, and that makes a huge difference in their language and literacy uh, development. And uh, so this is a small effort that, that uh, many people can do. Um, so I want to add that it doesn't have to be huge. And I also want to mention that um, a, a sentence that always echoed in my mind that one refugee said to me, I always feel like a guest in a, in a host, host house. So we need to, everybody has to make an effort. It takes a village to make them feel that they are not a guest, but they're also being part of the host. Thank you. Your Honor? Yeah, I'd like to um, answer that by saying that, of course, government has uh, an important role to play. And, and Chris is correct, I think, that Canada has overall done um, a, a good job, uh, you know, and this is in the international context of, of um, supporting um, economic immigrants um, and also balancing that with the need to support people who are, who are escaping intolerable conditions in their, in their countries of, of origin. That's not to say it's perfect, um, but, and it will evolve, evolve over time. And I think there has been, uh, this pandemic actually has, has brought into sharper focus some of those challenges. And there is a greater degree of attention, I think, really at all levels of government on some of these issues. But I'd also like to answer your question by giving some credit to some of the really terrific organizations that are doing important work in this space. So I would mention you know, a few organizations that I've personally had personal involvement with. Um, one is the Canadian Pediatric Society, which does a fabulous job of training pediatricians across the country. They have a, a framework called um, uh, um, services for kids new to Canada. But what that does is it actually provides um, uh, uh, pediatricians and allied professionals with really important uh, information on best practice uh, in, in current uh, clinical practice around dealing with children, but also their broader families. Uh, I think the Immigrant Employer Council is also doing a, a good job of, of educating uh, businesses across the province about how they can be more effective in uh, supporting um, uh, immigrants and new, Can new Canadians to, to feel that sense of belonging in those workplace cultures. Uh, Carol Lee and the Chinatown Foundation are building a storytelling center, uh, which will tell important stories about the history of Chinese Canadians uh, and how they helped to build this country. Uh, Mosaic, another organization I served on the board of, is a sister organization to Chris's and, and, and also does fabulous work. Uh, and then, of course, civil society organizations like the YWCA or the YMCA. The YWCA has a fabulous um, mentorship program where professional women provide mentorship to, uh, to new Canadians, immigrants, uh, uh, who um, need some support integrating, these are professional women, integrating into uh, jobs in, in, in their chosen field. And that's one of the ways of dealing with some of the challenges around certification and, and having your, um, your, your qualifications actually acknowledged. Um, and also the business organizations, uh, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the BC Business Council are doing important work around best practice and inclusion um, and, and uh, also educating businesses about the 
you know, the advantages of, of um, um, you know, the fact that, that organizations that are more diverse outperform those that are not basically on all measures, in, including their financial performance. So I think we need to support these organizations. Um, these are the organizations that have the, these stories that can help to uh, broaden people's awareness and understanding of the positive benefits of, of newcomers to Canada. And we need to give them our full support. We also need to reach out personally, um, you know, as a number of people have mentioned, uh, to make a personal commitment to try to better understand the experience of those who, who are different from ours. Thank you very much. Before I close the program, thank you so much for all your questions, by the way. Um, really interesting questions. Thank you for sending them to us. And before I close the program, I'd like to give our speakers each a chance to provide a final thought. Uh, let us know what is the most important takeaway that you're hoping our audience will depart with today and, and take out into the world as, as better informed citizens striving to build a more welcoming and inclusive BC and Canada. Uh, Danny Rambadan, why don't we start with you? Uh, sure thing. I think I'm going to run with the same theme that we ended with that last question and, and talk about one major um, item on my list, which is uh, the sense of belonging and when it came uh, around. And for me, in my own personal experience, my sense of belonging came around when I had my self-determination. When I had enough knowledge of the community around me, enough knowledge of the choices that I have around me, and then I, I made my own decisions. I made my own decisions where to live, what to eat, how to, what to work, um, and how to fit into the society. That's when I felt the most sense of belonging. And that also reflects back on all of my answers regarding the uniqueness of the refugee experience, trusting this newcomer, trusting this refugee, that they know the best uh, for themselves. And I think that by itself um, might on the short term end up with some unfortunate situations, some unfortunate uh, challenges for newcomers. But I think on the long term, it helps uh, quite a lot in ensuring that those folks feel uh, empowered enough to make their own decisions, to, to um, to build their careers, to build their lives here, integrate into the community and find a home for themselves right here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Go Fang Lee, what would you like our audience to take away today? I want to reiterate that the importance of helping new immigrants um, in terms of their language education and the service um, uh, access and uh, also uh, anti-racism education, both uh, in uh, adult language education and also K-12 uh, education. And I want to say that uh, educators are in the front line of helping them uh, succeed and they are really doing important work. Thank you very much. And Chris Friesen, uh, for you, what would you like the audience to, to go away with today? I think we have to understand that integration is a, is a two-way street and there are rights and responsibilities that a newcomer has when they arrive in Canada, but there are responsibilities and roles that the host community can play. So I would suggest, you know, start simple, look at your own community and see the intersection points where newcomers gather. Is there a practical uh, way that you could help? 
uh, provide a more uh, um, uh, welcome and, and inclusive community. Start small, um, but those uh, will have a huge difference in, in the lives of newcomers. Immigrants and refugees to Canada, they only want to contribute. They want to reach their full potential in this country. They want to give back. And remember, they will be future Canadians. It is up to us uh, to provide the most uh, inclusive welcome that we can provide. Finally, Your Honor, what, uh, what is a final thought you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, I guess what I would like to say is that, you know, the past half a year has been fraught with incredible challenge and, and uh, the emergence of some of examples of racism has been part of that. But they've also brought a, a generous sharing of new knowledge. Um, they built trust across boundaries that divide us in society and, and taught us patience, compassion and humility. I'm hopeful that we are seeing a renewal of our commitment to the Canadian values of diversity and inclusion, but also tempered with a recognition that the society we aspire to is not a reality for many and that we do have work to do. I think we better understand our mutual inter interdependence and the importance of acting collectively to address the challenges we face. And those are challenges of economy, climate, society, and, and obviously health. In a sense, we've been given a bit of a gift, and that is a chance to look at the world with fresh eyes and to reassess our priorities. Appreciating and valuing diversity is fundamental to this. I think there's also an openness to, to big changes and new ideas, um, ideas that might never have been considered a year ago, um, ideas that are not based on, on ideology, but in evidence and new knowledge and, and grounded in a values-based commitment to shared prosperity. So I think we have a chance to make our world better for all of us, and it is my hope that we take it. Thank you very much. Thank you again to all of you, Your Honor, Janet Austin, Chris Friesen, Gofang Lee, and Danny Ramadan for joining us today and sharing your ideas on how we can continue to build more welcoming and inclusive communities for all.